Hey everybody, welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. We have a really fun chat for you today with author Mark Chiasano. He's got a book coming out next week on George Santos, and we're going to get to Mark in just a second. But first, thank you for tuning in today. We appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media, and we'll read some feedback next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. So here's some feedback we received recently. On our interview with the ADL's Jonathan Greenblatt, Melinda writes, queuing this one up to listen on this bus ride to Washington for the March for Israel. Am Yisrael Chai. On our Gershon Baskin interview, Mary Haldeman writes, wow, 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 great interview with so much context and history. Thank you, Mr. Baskin. Christina Beck writes, great interview, and Gershon Baskin is the first person I've heard speaking about this war with clarity and compassion. And on our John Fuglesang interview, Leslie J. writes, Thank you for this. It was a wonderful start to my day. Of course, the two most handsomest men in podcasting are voice only. I know. We should do a video someday, but we don't want to excite too many people, I guess. <laughs> I like the story about you coming in second to him in the comedy contest and how touching he mentioned Adrian and your HBO documentary. Well, thank you, Leslie J., for all of those props. So, on the way over here... I saw something online. It was a word that someone used, which reminded me that I hate that word. It's really annoying. But I'm not going to tell you my word. First, I want to hear your words. You got a word that when you hear it, it just drives you crazy. I don't have a specific word, but I have a phrase which makes me crazy. And it's usually given to me by shopkeepers, but it still makes me crazy. It's as you're leaving and they say, have a good one. Have a good one. <laughs> it is literally the most vacant, vapid, just awfulness. And mm. I, I wish it would go away. Okay, Jen. Uh, uh, moist. <laughs> I don't. There's wow. no explanation needed. Wow, that's one for a psychologist. Mm-hmm. That's just. There's so much <laughs> we could spend the entire time talking about that. Okay, mine. You know what mine is? Frye. What? Frye? Yeah. What is Frye? It's fry. Pe- people who can't say Frye. <laughs> <laughs> like, yay! It's Friday. Frye. I never usually heard it's that. followed usually by an exclamation point. You're not making fun of a disability now, are you? <laughs> <laughs> what, what disability would that be? People who can't pronounce the letter D? It sounds that way. <laughs> no, but like frye. You never heard that? Seriously? I, no. It's like the I literally never heard It's it. a word of like the fun people. You know fun oh, people. Well, that will explain it cuz I'm not <laughs> <fun>. <laughs> That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> happy, happy Friday. Oh, shut up. I bet you eat Froyo too, right? All right. Let's get into the crazy news of the day. We got a shutdown avoided. Biden signed the bill last night. So now we can be functioning for another three weeks or whatever the hell this short-term bill is. That's about as much as they could possibly hope for. I think it, it's almost a good thing because something functioning took place. Yeah. Well, look, it's better than nothing. You know, sure. the markets won't crash this week and everybody won't lose their life savings. And I guess it's a good sign for Mike Johnson that he avoided this in a bipartisan way, perhaps. So, you know, a functioning house isn't a bad Until thing. mid-January when they try to get rid of him for this <laughs> entire thing. Right. Uh, Biden and China. I mean, that was pretty historic stuff. <laughs> the Two presidents of two superpowers have reopened a dialogue. They're going to be talking. That's good. You have the military, which had ceased communicating years ago. They're now going to 
be talking again. And I think even more importantly, on a real tangible level here in this country, they've agreed to work together to combat the flow of fentanyl from China into the United States. So I, I, I say this sarcastically, but for an old feeble guy who everybody is wondering, you know, should he be president? If you look at the economy, you look at Ukraine, you look at Israel, you look at all the things that are happening in the world, and plus all the bipartisan shit he got passed, infrastructure, new gun reform bill in 30 years. Like, I don't get it. I just, I don't get it. I see this guy as an awesome president. The guy's doing his job, right? Yeah, I was just going to say that I think it's a, a tribute to the good side of capitalism because it seems like the main reason why China is interested in building any relationship is the disinvestment of American companies from China. That's a good thing that he's... A agreed. Know, that, yeah. Another thing that's happening, which is just crazy in this country, it's like we've lost our moral center, you know? Uh, first, you had the Republican Party, which completely went off the rails with Trump hating the military and attacking the military and, and Tommy Tuberville and his bullshit that he's pulling in the Senate and all the sucking up to Putin and Kim and Orban and, and uh, MBS, et cetera, et cetera, and then the turn on Ukraine by Republicans. And then, as of October 7th, we're seeing people in this country supporting Hamas. And then this week, there's this Osama bin Laden letter, which he wrote right after the 9-11 attacks, justifying them, attacking America and blaming us for it. And you have people that are going fucking crazy, going, you know what, I just read this letter and it's changed my whole perspective on everything. Everything I ever thought about this country, about the world, it just blew me away. It's, what the fuck? This is not journalism at its best, I think, actually. What, what happened with TikTok is uh, also happening with all of the social media platforms. You have algorithmically amplified messages, which are not always good, and they're, none of them are doing a good job of this. But, you know, when this happens, and it needs to be stopped algorithmically you have journalists who report on it like it's the end of the world and everyone is supporting bin laden and terrorists i think it's exaggerated by the media but it's also just a failure a big failure of social media that uh, allows this to happen I, I gotta be honest here if tiktok fed me videos of tom hanks eating babies i'd be like this is bullshit I wouldn't be like, oh, my God, everything I ever thought about Tom Hanks, he was such a nice guy, but now look, like, what is wrong with the people? I mean, what's next? People are going to be like, Mein Kampf is a great summer beach read. I don't know whether this is a Gen Z problem because most of the videos I've seen on TikTok are all younger people, but something is happening in this country that is just fucking insane. I, I think there's always been crazy people and stupid people and people who say and do stupid things. We just see it more. The media likes to pick up these stories. It's a great story when something is quote-unquote trending in social media. So I think it's mostly exaggerated. I definitely don't blame any generation for it. It tends to be younger people, but, you know, I think it's just it's Maddie, all bullshit. They're showing support for Osama bin Laden. To me, it's such a colossal failure in education if people in this country, especially young people, co college students, aren't understanding the historical perspective and context of Putin, of Hamas, of Hezbollah, of bin Laden. It's Osama bin Laden. He fucking killed 3,000 people and would have done more if he could. I mean, I just think we are in a really fucked up place in this country. And it's getting worse.
So I, I, to, I think to ignore it and dismiss it, minimize it, is really not smart. I, 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 you're right, 100%. And I, that's an interesting point that Osama bin Laden and Hamas are in the same mindset for young people. We have a problem in this country on many levels with the level of education, the level of understanding of civics, with context of history. We've had it for years, you know, where people are forgetting the Holocaust. And so we're entering this stage where when we forget history, history gets repeated. And that's a problem. I think that there are definitely problems that you bring up, but I think that blanket assertions of college students not knowing better are not accurate either because many know exactly what's going on and have a good sense of history. And the ones that are stupid or the ones that are saying things or doing things that are wrong or borderline promoting people who are obviously evil are the ones that are promoted algorithmically, and those are the ones that get the most attention, and those are a small percentage. I see it as emblematic of a much bigger problem in this country that we've seen in other ways for the last eight, nine years. Let's talk about another terrorist, Donald Trump. <laughs> New CNN poll came out this morning. Trump's at 42%, hmm. Nikki Haley, 20%, Chris Christie, 14%, Ron DeSantis, 9%, Vivek Ramaslimi, eight percent. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is that there's now twenty-two points to separate Trump and Tricky Nikki, who I've said keep your eyes on. It's a much narrower gap between Trump and Haley. And I gotta say, because I was thinking about this on the way over, I really want Trump to be the nominee because that battle was fought before, mm -hmm. and I have no unless it's stolen or someone gets ill or worse. There's no way on this planet in a straight-up election that Donald Trump beats Biden again. No one who voted for Biden then is voting for Trump now. So it, it's really going to be interesting to me to see where this goes because I think it's really going to come down to those two. And I think given he, what, the legal problems he's facing, I think she's going to pull this out. I really do. But then again, I thought Mike Pence was going to be the nominee. <laughs> so who the fuck cares what I think? Maybe we'll leave it at that. Yes. All right. Let's get to our winners and losers. <laughs> My winner, cooling carbs. Cooking and cooling rice, pasta, and potatoes produces a resistant starch, and they've been linked with lower cholesterol, inflammation, plus reducing certain kinds of cancers. That's like my dream. <laughs> My loser, Republicans with no interest in governing. 31st time this year that Republicans have spent time on the floor using a spending bill to try to strip the salary of a member of President Biden's team. My winner is Lena Khan for, in the court case with Google, getting Google to reveal that they pay 36% of their ad <laughs> revenue that shows up on Apple devices to Apple, which is like $10 billion plus a year. That, to me, is the decisive moment where Google is going to lose this antitrust case and Lena Khan's going to come out as a genius that she is, I think. My loser is Barbie's on-again, off-again boyfriend, Ken, because once again, he's lost out at being inducted into the Toy Hall of Fame, and he lost out to the Cabbage Patch Kid and the Fisher-Price Popper, among others. My winner, 80-year-old Connecticut Democrat Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro, who humiliated Marjorie Taylor Greene on the House floor with a middle school civics lesson on how bills get passed. My loser, Republican Oklahoma Senator Mark Wayne Mullen, who wanted to beat up Teamsters President Sean O'Brien during a Senate committee hearing on labor issues. 
All right, this gets us to our weekly rant. Eight years ago, I wrote a blog called Trump and Hitler. It drew comparisons between Trump, who just burst onto the American political scene with his presidential candidacy, with the German dictator and maniacal mastermind of the Nazi Holocaust. It flashed an early warning sign of Trump's flirtation with authoritarianism and cautioned against lulling oneself into a false sense of security that the atrocities in 1940s Europe could never happen again, especially here in America. At the time, very few in the media were comparing Trump to Hitler or comparing the horror of Nazi Germany to Trump's behavior here. It was actually frowned upon in mainstream circles and was viewed as an affront to Holocaust victims and their families. As a Jew and as someone with functioning eyes and ears, I disagreed. To the contrary, I wrote, it was to draw chilling foundational parallels between Hitler's genocide, the hateful propaganda and scapegoating that preceded it, and the kind of dangerous demagoguery that was being spewed daily from Trump's mouth. And that we cannot be afraid to make such comparisons because doing so gives the hate mongers a free pass. As such, Huffington Post, on whose front page my pieces regularly appeared, refused to publish it and gave no explanation. It was a cowardly move that, in hindsight, was a shameful example of journalistic myopia and denial. Because today, many in mainstream circles, including writers, pundits, and left-wing politicos, expressly understand and are hugely concerned with Trump's Nazi fascination, his penchant for spewing Hitler's dangerous anti-Semitic rhetoric, his embrace, incitement, and protection of white nationalists, and his fascist threats to his perceived detractors and enemies should he become president again. Now you hear constant fear that America's democracy is coming to an end and a new era of authoritarianism or fascism will begin should Trump regain power. We see how anti-Semitism has exploded since the barbaric Hamas attack October 7th in Israel, with Jewish students being harassed on college campuses, hostage posters being torn down, Jews being hunted down in an airport in Russia, and often violent anti-Israel protests all over the world. We see Trump sidling up to brutal dictators like Putin, Kim, and Viktor Orban, while calling terrorist organizations like Hezbollah smart. We're starting to realize that never again is bullshit, because it actually happened again, albeit on a much smaller scale. But could very well happen again, because history repeats itself if we don't learn from it. Okay, that brings us to our guest today, Mark Chiasano. He covered George Santos as a columnist and editorial writer at New York Newsday, Long Island's paper of record. And as the youngest editorial writer in the paper's history, he interviewed national leaders like Hillary Clinton and Hakeem Jeffries, and also tracked and wrote along with far-right patriot groups and fringe-left activists, and traveled from New Hampshire to Puerto Rico to tell the story of American politics on the ground. He is also a New York City native and fiction writer whose story collection, Marine Park, received a Penn Hemingway Award honorable mention. His writing has appeared in places like The Drift, The Paris Review, and The Atlantic. Mark, welcome into the back room. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you know there's that expression, timing in life is everything, right? <laughs> Truly. Unbelievable. It's an honor to have you on. You have a book coming out November 20th called The Fabulist, The Lying, Hustling, Grifting, Stealing, and Very American Legend of George Santos. And so we were going to talk about that today and then this morning the news around George Santos has blown up. So we have the release of the House Ethics Committee report. We That was followed up very quickly by an announcement by Ethics Committee Chairman Michael guessed that he is going to move for expulsion, perhaps as early as tomorrow. And then George Santos tweeted that he's not going to run for re-election. 
This is like the ultimate gift to an author, isn't it? <laughs> it is truly perfect timing, especially because we'll see exactly what the what the sort of uh, machinations of the vote would be. But the vote to expel could be right when the book comes out, <laughs> so the literal day or the day before. So it's fun. Uh, I'm I'm glad. Uh, couldn't happen to a nicer guy. <laughs> And, you know, I'm sure people on the right, especially uh, Santos, will say it's all rigged. The, the, the fix was in. This book was going to come out or perhaps everything that's happening to him is because of you. It's all your fault, Mark, isn't it? It's only my fault. Yeah. No, he is no fan of mine for sure. Um, he, um, you know, I when I was working at Newsday and writing about him uh, in his first two runs, he would pick up the phone. Right. And he was. Uh, you know, he started off being actually pretty polite and friendly, and he's a very, very charismatic guy. Mm -hmm. um, but that turned pretty quickly to him getting sort of nasty and, uh, you know, insulting and angry um, as I was sort of writing more and more sort of questioning things about him. Like, mm -hmm. what is your demand? You right. know? He, he kind of has that Ted Bundy charm, doesn't he? He is a very, very charming guy. I mean, I would say that was one of the almost like universal things that mm -hmm. people him would tell me when I talked to them. I talked to over 100 people who knew him for this book. Um, and many, many, many of them said that he's a really tall guy. He's got a big presence. Mm -hmm. um, he knows kind of how to be friendly and how to be charming. And I think that's kind of how he got this far. We've now had eight, nine years of Donald Trump on the political scene. Very similar character, also very charming, but kind of sociopathic. Is Santos sociopathic? So interesting. Yeah. You know, I reached out to a lot of mental health professionals when I was doing this book, and there's a real reluctance to like diagnose from afar now because of all the Barry Goldwater rule, which was when, mm -hmm. uh, you know, health professionals kind of made the opposite choice with Goldwater decades ago. Um, but I did talk to some who, who sort of pointed me towards something called Pseudologia Fantastica, which is um, basically a situation where you are you, you just kind of believe your own stories, you know, and you're sort of that deep into them that they become real to you. And I think that's kind of what it is with him. Um, there is a sort of amount of menace. Like he can be a very threatening guy when he's cornered. Um, he threatened me. He's threatened to sue me multiple times, which we'll see. I don't know. <laughs> I'm waiting. Um, but he's more more seriously. He's threatened people with not a lot of power at all. And and you know, kind of people who are very vulnerable. Um, and so he does have that threatening side, but he is really just living, I think, living in his own mind that he, something else a lot of people told me when I asked them about him is that he seems to really believe his own line, you know? Um, he kind of has, it, it's just, he's living that kind of fantasy. Mm -hmm. And so, I don't know, I came away from the book feeling a little, a little sad for, for him, to be honest. Um, He's he's living a strange life and is very kind of, um, you know, alone and kind of uh, sequestered. And so I yeah, it's it's a it's a tragedy, I think. Just to play devil's advocate, why would you feel sorry for someone who has willfully duped like everyone from voters to a, a vet who had a sick dog and he stole money from this the owner of the sick dog? The reason I got into this book in the first place was almost out of a sense of kind of indignation mm -hmm. for both the voters of the third congressional district who, you know, I was writing about all the time for Newsday and the way they got duped and also for his actual victims, you know, I mean, 
he left a long trail of victims. I've met a woman in a favela in Brazil, you know, um, who is in that position, not in small part because of Santos himself, you know, mm -hmm. and you mentioned Rich Ostoff, the vet, you know, who, um, who Santos was a big part in his dog dying. Um, you know, it's, it's tragic. It's a, it's a horror show. I mean, this guy, Rich is a really, really, um, you know, I spent a lot of time with him as well. He loves his dogs. It's like one of the most important parts of his life. And just to think that Santos kind of took that away from him just to increase his bank account by, mm. you know, a couple of K it's crazy. So I, I do think that this book was written with a sense of indignation. Um, but, you know, I think that there's, there is a human level where, you know, we, you sort of, you, you see this, uh, you see the way he's like running through the rat maze, you know, and there is ultimately no way out. And there is something sad about that, that he felt that he needed to live this kind of life. Right. And, and then did it with sort of tragic consequences for so many people. I guess Santos models himself after Trump. A lot of the junior Republicans do. They see what he's done, what he's gotten away with, and they think they can yeah. do it too. Trump has so much power and that speaks to what you were saying about Santos, is that he doesn't. He's just like a schmuck who, That's right. he's in serious trouble, and he's going down. And he doesn't have that thing, that Teflon, that Trump seems to manufacture and maintain so well. And so I can understand what you're saying about feeling a little bit sorry for someone who just can't get out of his own way and is in so much trouble. One of the things that broke this morning is that he is likely going to be expelled, although two weeks ago there was a vote and uh, he managed to escape expulsion at that point and largely saved by, by Democrats. Why do you think Democrats wouldn't have moved to kick him out of Congress? Because you know if the shoe was on the other foot, right? They're out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a very, very complex politics. And I'm, I'm curious um, to see, just like you are, to see what happens in the next couple of weeks. Um, I think that it, it's difficult to say exactly what Democrats are doing. At one point earlier in the year, right, they did push to um, to oust him. And then it was at that point, it was Republicans who blocked it. Um, and also, you know, there are sort of outliers on both sides um, that, you know, some some it, it, this isn't exactly a party line issue. One thing that some Democrats have said is that, you know, Santos deserves due process, right? He, um, you know, you can't just kind of uh, throw someone in jail or even kick them out of Congress without um, without proving your case, right? Without them, without it being very clear that they did something mm -hmm. to that to that level. I'm sort of, you know, speaking almost in quotes here. This is what they're arguing, um, and there's a, yeah, there, there's a, there's a reason to make that argument, right? I mean, if you look also in the Senate politically for Democrats. Um, Senator Menendez is having his own uh, right. corruption mm -hmm. issues. So they don't want to be, you know, pushing someone out without like real, real reason. Right. So fair enough. You know, I think maybe that's a cynical calculation. It also kind of lets Santos stay in there for a while and make Republicans look bad mm -hmm. for a long time, which Democrats don't hate. Right. So, you know, you can see all those reasons. All that said, now that we have this ethics committee report, which is truly, truly damning. I mean, it is extremely damning stuff. I think you're already going to see, we already are seeing, and I think you're just going to see more members kind of flip over to the other side and say, that was the due process. We gave him due process. 
let's go. Let's yeah. get this guy out. So you think that it's, they'll have cover that they didn't feel they, they had before. And to he your point, the, yeah, to quote from the report, uh, substantial evidence of potential federal crime. Um, they said he blatantly stole from his campaign, paid for Botox, OnlyFans accounts, designer goods, mm-hmm. lavish trips to Atlantic City and the Hamptons, honeymoon expenses. Um, and he, he, he attempted to fraudulently exploit every aspect of his house candidacy. You can't get more damning than that, can you? It's a tough, it's a tough report. By the way, if people, if your listeners are interested in that, you know, him, you know, using campaign money for Botox, for gambling and things like that, there's a lot of that in my book. I mean, this is a long history with Santos that he um, has been doing tons of work on himself to sculpt his body um, and also um, has this long history of gambling in, in, in even sort of mooching off other people to support his gambling habits. So uh, very, very fun scenes on that in the book. And so, so let's talk about the book. What was the biggest surprise in your researching him and following him that you came across in writing the book? Yeah, I think that I learned a lot about him um, from kind of the way his early life shaped him. I was kind of fascinated by that. And, you know, as a, as a, a political, um, you know, journalist, as a, as a, as a, when I was writing for Newsday, I was focused very much on the contemporary, you know, kind of his campaign, what he was doing, some of the lies he was telling at that point, you know, in the present. And it was really fun to kind of go back and see the threads that kind of traced all the way through to his life now, you know. And so he grew up in Queens um, in, um, in a sort of very kind of uh, diverse neighborhood in Queens and Jackson Heights and uh, went to public schools there, at least sort of for a while intermittently. And I think that that really, really helped shape him it was like this world that is a great world for a lot of people. You know, it's like a perfect world. It's very family oriented. It's a, you know, you kind of have tons of opportunities there. You're in the you know greatest city in the world, in my opinion. Um, but it wasn't enough for him. You know, he was always he was already even then kind of looking for something bigger. Um, so that was fascinating for me. And then I spent a while in Brazil, you know, where he spent some time when he was a you know kind of adolescent. And I think that that is kind of the, that was like his finishing school. Mm-hmm. You know, he it, it, he learned other skills in Brazil. Um, he did a lot of his, you know, his this famously sort of dressing in drag in Brazil. Um, so one of the, my favorite moments of reporting the book was going to um, to a drag club um, um, where he where his mentor, his his sort of um, drag mentor, was performing. And this mentor, you know, sort of dresses in the way that we see, we've seen the pictures of Santos dressing. So mm-hmm. it was kind of like a way to see what Santos looked like when he was dressing in drag. <laughs> I mean, it, it's just, it's startling how, just how bonkers his life is. You mentioned Menendez. Okay. Politician took a bribe. Yeah. I've heard it before. We've, we've heard, heard it before. That's... Santos yeah, yeah, yeah. just, it's, it's like a sitcom. Oh, you know, I know. I mean, it's crazy. The, the 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 amount of crazy shit is just mind numbing, isn't it? You know, I mean, that's what drew me to this story was that I, you know, in my other sort of side life, I write fiction. I'm a, I'm a fiction writer. Um, so I love writing. You know, I love sort of thinking in stories and narratives. And this is just such a crazy, great story. You know, this is this guy who grew up in Queens um, and just wanted to be like a big deal. 
and he couldn't do it. So he made it up, you know, and he made everything up. And it's just so fun. There's so many strange moments, um, things that he lied about that it was like, why would you do this? And so many scams he pulled. I mean, one of my favorites, um, which is in the book and hasn't really been anywhere else, is that he's at one point living with his mother which he lived with her for a long time, very close to his mother. He's living with her and his sister and his sister's friend, who's 16 years old, from Brazil, coming to New York to visit and, uh, and doesn't speak English. This kid speaks no English, right? He's in high school. And Santos scams him for like hundreds of dollars. Like, just why? You know, why do you do that? And it's just, it's over and over again with him, with that. In the Is he smart? Is he a brilliant guy, in your opinion? It's a great question. You know, he is he is very sharp. Um, I I I don't know what you know brilliance is really, but um, politically he has what um, he has that sort of thing that a good politician has, I think, which is being able to sense what someone wants to hear, what a room is looking for. You know, he's able to kind of craft his stump speech for the room that he's in. And that's a, that's a that's a thing that you need in politics, you know? And he just took it a little too far. Mm. You've got some crazy anecdotes in the book. I want to go through a few of them. Tell us about sure. Aunt Elma. Aunt Elma, yeah. Um, a very sad story, you know? Um, this was a, and a family member who he was very close to. He lived with her as well for points during his life. Um, and uh, she is a Brazilian immigrant. Um, came to New York, sort of built her life as well. She was she did some house cleaning at a certain point, and um, you know, sort of had worked different jobs and sort of built a life here. And she, you know, doted on him. I was told by family members and friends that she really loved him. You know, she would do anything for him, mm-hmm. and that included giving him money that he then um, that he stole from her. Um, the, one of the saddest things to me is that, you know, this was years ago that he did this, that he stole from his own aunt. Um, and then when he, you know, when all this stuff broke and he gets indicted by the federal government, she's one of the people that um, that sort of signs the bond for him. So she's the one who lets him be out in the world now and not in jail waiting for trial, right? She and, and his father. Um, and so that was, you, you, you know, there's a she went to court and this is this incredible moment where she had to sort of say to the judge, like, yes, I agree. He's my nephew. Like he, I, I agree to like put myself on the line for him. Again, it's an immigrant. This is a person who like has worked her whole life, like worked very, very hard um, to, uh, to build a life here. And she's the one who's putting herself on the line for him after he's done all these allegedly crazy things. Mm. And you mentioned the body sculpting. You go into a lot of detail about the procedures that he's had, which are plentiful. Speak mm-hmm. to that for a bit, because to the naked eye, the, when I look at him, he should ask for his money back. Was he something much different than we see now that we don't see the the OG Santos and what he looked like? Right. Well, he's definitely, it's funny, the people I talked to who spent a lot of time with him over recent years often mentions that he... Would, his appearance changed a lot, you know, that he was often kind of losing weight or gaining weight. And this was like a common thing with him. Um, but he just really was, he, he, he tried everything, or at least that's what he told people, you know, that he tried liposuction, he tried lap band surgery, he tried Ozempic, um, sort of famously. Um, mm-hmm. I have a really fun scene in the book where he is, um, 
you know, he's up at a campaign event and he's, is like some elderly senior citizens who are there to hear him talk about, you know, whatever, COVID or immigration or something. And he's just going into Ozempic about how he loves it. It worked really well for him. He's actually, he owns stock in the company, which who knows if that's true or not. <laughs> it probably isn't. Um, but yeah, he just, it, it's a pretty important part of his life. He, he brings it up a lot. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that he's the world's worst roommate or was the world's worst roommate. I think that's a fair statement. You know, <laughs> it's, you know, this book had to be fact-checked. It had to be legally vetted. And there were some things, you know, there's some sort of allegations in it that sometimes I, wonder, I wondered like, okay, am I good here? Are we clean? Is this fair? That one, I think that's fair. <laughs> he's, mm -hmm. he's tough. No, he lived in, you know, in New York in different uh, Queens apartments um, and elsewhere. You know, he lived in Florida for a while. But um, I, in the book, I focused on Queens just with this litany of roommates who say that he stole from them or he just kind of screwed them over in one way or another. He would also, you know, just kind of be very on edge. He would sometimes yell at people, you know, get very angry. Yeah, not a not an ideal roommate for sure. And uh, you also go into more detail about his time in Brazil that you mentioned before. But he also wa he wanted to be uh, he was like a beauty pageant hopeful. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I found I spoke to um. This was a fun find in Brazil. I spoke to the longtime you know organizer of this beauty pageant. And it's it's for it's for you know um, drag you know men who are dressing in 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 you know in in dresses and et cetera and the, and these people look beautiful right it's like it's really it's a difficult difficult thing I talked to one person who'd been a judge and you know it, it's it, it's so you're, you're weighed down with how many kind of beads and jewels and heavy dresses and everything it's intense not, um, not great for the posture I guess. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's difficult. You know, when you, I can do when it. you're competing, right? And so he really wanted this. I was told he really wanted to be one of these, uh, you know, um, winners, and he was not. <laughs> he was not one of the winners. He he participated, but did not win. You say that he would he would don a bra and wrap a towel around his head and entertain people. Like, was that yeah. just uh, was that attached to the the beauty pageant endeavor, or was that no, just that, that was, was just who he was? Yeah, I mean, this was one of these like sweet details, I thought, from the book where this this was from a young girl who, you know, was kind of close to him. She was like a family friend um, and he would kind of do that to entertain her. You know, he was like kind of seen as like an uncle figure almost, you know, um, and and then she kind of loved that. Um, but later on, uh, he would go he would go on to kind of screw her family over monetarily. So it doesn't have a happy ending. And speaking of happy endings or not for George Santos, he's indicted on 23 felony counts. Uh, I think his trial is scheduled for next September. What do you think ultimately is going to happen to him? I mean, is this like a slam dunk case? Like, is he going to prison? And for a long time? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think one thing I've learned reporting on Santos is don't make predictions, you know, because he doesn't really obey logic and uh, he does lots of surprising things. But yes, the case is pretty, pretty um, tight and pretty open and shut. It's a lot of things that are just on paper. You know, it doesn't require the federal government to rely on a ton of witnesses or anything. Um, so he's in trouble with those counts. Um, it. it isn't it's very different, I think, from, for example, like Sam Bankman Fried's case. Like, I don't think that um, Santos, were he to be found guilty, would go away for anywhere near that amount of time. 
Um, but he's looking at, you know, years in jail for sure. Um, that's a possibility. And he now says he's not going to run again. That's mm-hmm. what he's saying now. Um, so we'll see. He can still take a plea deal for a while. My, I, I wonder if he, um, if he comes out of that this experience and tries to write a book, go on Dancing with the Stars. You know, I, I think he's he's somewhat irrepressible. Oh, he's you know? to- he's totally going on Dancing with the Stars. That's, yeah. <laughs> I'll bet any amount of money on that right now. He would love it. He would love it. Knowing him the way you do, when he says. I'm not running again. Do you believe him? I think so. I think that the obstacles are stacked against him if he were to run again. Um, the other key thing to look at is how little money he's raised since all mm. this broke, um, since the Times' this great story about him in December. Um, he's had a really hard time raising money. So it's kind of like, I think for him, that was one reason to run, right, was that he was able to live off uh, the campaign money in a way, or at least have this nice lifestyle. And so if he's not succeeding in getting donors to give him money, I don't know exactly what the point is. And also, it just would be difficult. I mean, the New York GOP is really, really against him and it's going to throw everything they can against him. That's right. And and there is an economic reality to, to running for office. Um, is, isn't George Santos just more symbolic of the broken Republican Party these days? Because Santos is an extreme case. But you have Paul Gosar, you have Matt Gates, you have Marjorie Taylor Greene, you have Lauren Boebert. The Congress, the GOP caucus is filled with George Santos's just on various levels. And so is this a domino or do you see him more as an isolated case and they're just going to continue to be nut jobs and do their thing and pretty much be untouched? Yeah, in in the book I call it's interesting that you mentioned Bobert and Gosar. I, I call them a kind of like shamelessness caucus along with Santos. Um, so that is in some ways what they are like, really trying to get attention, not super interested in governing, and uh, you know even helping their constituents so much. It's more about like getting attention for themselves. Um, and so I think that there is a strain of that in the Republican Party right now. I write in the book about some of the um, political forces that Santos channeled, for example, like anti-vax sentiment, you know, um, that he was able to kind of push into his run. Um, And so there are these forces in the Republican Party. What I find interesting is that, you know, perhaps it seems like Santos will face, you know, he face justice at some point, right? He will get kind of pushed out or be in jail or whatever. wow, we see what happens to Donald Trump, right? Who is a kind of mentor to, to Santos and someone that Santos has modeled himself after. So um, so I think that is kind of Santos is almost the vanguard of the Republican Party in terms of their shamelessness. He's kind of at the bleeding edge of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll see what happens to people who do slightly less than him. Well, it's certainly going to be fascinating to watch this unfold. I'm so glad we were able to pull this off last minute and, and get down here and Me talk too. about this. This was a great chat. I'm going to nominate you to be the backroom's official George Santos expert. So hopefully you'll come back again and keep us updated on all things Santos uh, as, as, as this do, unfolds. We could do Dancing with the Stars critiques. No joke. That's going to happen. We're going to do that someday. <laughs> Mark, thank you so much for, again for coming on. Thanks, Andy. Take care. This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander, and our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. And special thanks to Patricia Wind. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast, and also follow or subscribe. 
Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and have a great week. Thank you.